0: everybody!
1: More than 11,000 film and TV writers went on strike after the Writers Guild of America and a group representing TV networks and studios failed to agree on a contract. Hollywood is on strike. The TV and film business in the US is highly unionized. And in early May, the Writers Guild of America downed tools. And then on July 13th, the actors joined them on the picket line. So, if the new season of, say, Yellow Jackets or Stranger Things doesn't appear in the autumn, that's why. And it's why big name actors aren't appearing on the red carpet or anywhere else to promote their movies.
0: I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. It is disgusting. Shame on them.
1: That's Fran Drescher, who heads up the Actors Union, speaking after negotiations with studio bosses collapsed. And a lot of these negotiations come down to residuals.
0: Particularly what performers or writers are getting for films and TV shows in the future. So the large part of this is about getting fair recompense for whenever your work appears on a streaming service and is replayed instantly.
1: That's Irish Times chief film correspondent, Donald Clark. As he points out, it's not just money that's driving these strikes, it's technology. The new era of streaming and the coming one of AI.
0: You now have the capacity to uh, film an actor and reproduce him ad nauseum.
1: This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, why is Hollywood on strike? Donald Hollywood, the movie industry is it's heavily unionized, and this isn't the first time that Hollywood has gone on strike. The last time the writers and actors went on strike at the same time was in 1960, when Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild. Why are the writers striking now?
0: It's all to do with their agreement with um, the producers' organisation, which was due to expire at the end of June. And there was a lot of kerfuffle that they may or may not um, come to an agreement by that stage, and sure enough, they didn't. The negotiations between uh, the WGA, the Writers Guild, and those between the Screen Actors Guild and their employers are essentially about the same issues. Um, most significantly residuals, which is another word for royalties, which particularly what performers or writers are getting for films and TV shows in the future. Uh, and now, in times past, there were straightforward agreements about what you did about repeats, if things turned up um, uh, on television later on, or you showed a movie uh, on television. And in fact, going back to 1960, that's what, what large part of that debate was about, about what happened when you showed something again on television. Um, those agreements don't cover the new world of streaming. Um, so the large part of this is about getting fair recompense for whenever your work appears on a streaming service and is replayed instantly. And the unions, reasonably enough, want some recognition of how popular a particular thing is. And this goes to another issue, which is too complicated to get in here, about the streamers not wanting to reveal information about how often something is watched. They don't want to get into the business of rate of um, uh, of of a chart of how many people are watching Wednesday and how many people are watching whatever.
1: So the writers went on strike in the first week in May and then we had the actors joining them Mm -hmm. in the second week in July. Were the actors joining them sort of in solidarity or do they have separate issues too? Are they the same issues, really? They're
0: essentially the same issues, I think. Um, I mean, obviously there are differences between um, the the two businesses and there are certainly differences in how the strike will affect... um, um, in what way they work and what way they don't work during the strike. But essentially it's about the same thing, essentially about how technology has changed the business and how people are being rewarded um, as a result of those changes um, in the business. So essentially, I mean, it looks a bit as if they're coming out in sympathy. That's not quite accurate. I mean, it works that way. I mean, it works that way. But essentially they are both grappling with the same issues. And it's come to this point for both organizations at the same point.
1: So... If we talk about writers for a minute, so writers earn money, you know, in loads of different ways. They come up with ideas, they write scripts. We've heard of writers' rooms, they create shows. So what has changed for writers, though?
0: Well, I think the business probably hasn't changed all that much, really. I mean, what's what's changed is what happens to your work after it leaves your... Um, laptop and ends up um, with the studios and then what the studios do with it. Essentially, um, writers are doing very much the same job that they always did. Um, But they now look at a world in which it was relatively straightforward in the past. You knew when something was being watched. You knew when it was being watched again. And there were ways, there 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 are therefore relatively simple ways that you could... um, organised recompense for that thing turning up again. I think essentially the job was really surprisingly unchanged since the 40s um, and uh, you know that that uh, one part of that is that writers would say with some justification that they're still uh, further down the tree than they deserve to be. There's that ancient joke about the starlet who was so stupid she slept with a writer uh, in Hollywood and that, I think they would probably make that same joke today and I thought it was interesting that um, in terms of the visibility of this that um, People who learned about this, I think, or became aware of this um, last week at the Oppenheimer uh, premiere, when Christopher Nolan stood up and um, said, my cast, If you saw my cast in the red carpet, including obviously Killian Murphy, Florence Pugh and others, and they've all gone off to make their placards for the strike. We had to protect
1: the people who were kind of on the margins, and 26,000 bucks a year is what you have to make to get your health insurance, and, and there are a lot of people who residual payments are what carry them across that threshold, and, and, and if If those residual payments dry up, so does their health care, and that's absolutely uh, unacceptable.
0: And it sort of occurred to one yeah, but you're not. You're not slumming off, obviously, because obviously no one really cares what writers appear in the red carpet or appear before audiences or not. Sure. They, appear, they care if Killian if, um, Murphy or Florence Pugh or um, Emily Blunt mm. uh, appear on red carpets. But the WGA obviously didn't even consider whether people would be interested in talking to them because that's the lot of the writer. No one cares what you look like and what you're wearing on the red carpet.
1: So for actors, though, like what's their main beef?
0: Well, the beef, again, is what we said. Well, having said about the distinctions between the two organisations, there is one issue that concerns writers in a way that doesn't concern writers to the same extent, which is the issue of artificial intelligence. Because you now have the capacity to uh, film an actor and reproduce him ad nauseum. Uh, now, obviously, the negotiations around that vary from contract to contract. But the, one of the things which is interesting about this conversation and how this has been reported is... I think, to be fair, a lot of the actors at the top of the tree obviously are comfortably often can live in their you know Bel Air mansions in absolute luxury until the end of their days They live to be a thousand. But there is an impressive degree of solidarity, I think, shown by those more famous people towards people who are struggling to make enough payments to qualify for health insurance, for example. And um, at the bottom of that pile are extras, you know, that um, are background actors. And there is a Notion being put out that what Hollywood is proposing, what the studios are proposing, is that if you're a background extra, you turn background actor, you turn up your shot in, you know, whatever you're wearing that day, they file that away, and then they can use that forever, whenever they're actually in a crowd scene. They can drag out its footage of you, put a new hat on you, put a new costume on you, and you'll still only get one flat payment
1: for that for one that day.
0: Initial day that you turned up. And that clearly can't be just or fair. That is, I think, the area of concern that the um, actors have that doesn't impact on the writers to the same extent. Though it doesn't impact them, there is still this notion that um, uh, that a computer program could you know, write a relatively basic um, sitcom. It's pushed a few buttons. There's certainly it's not at all unreasonable to suggest that such a thing could write little bits of dialogue to fill in gaps. Whereas previously you'd fill up, phone up a writer and say, "Hey, we need this scene or this scene to be fleshed out somewhat."
1: Or even sort of scenes. maybe formulaic movies like a Hallmark movie. Maybe an AI yeah, a- well, a- yes. a- could, you know. Well, I don't.
0: I don't wish to be unkind <laughs> towards people who make those genre yeah. movies. I'm sure I couldn't do it. But yes, there is a sense in which once you have a formula, that, that um, it's not it's not un- it's not. Un- feasible that at some point in the future you could feed that formula into a piece of software and that could produce that for the writers. Though that's a little bit more science fictiony We're already in an area where we've seen I mean, obviously this is a different issue because all, all this was done with his consent, but where you're watching, you know, bits of Robert De Niro be repurposed to produce a young Robert De Niro and the Irishman. I can drive them. I can't fix them. <laughs> you're back in business, kid. Thanks. Um, you know, I and mean, you can easily imagine a situation when somebody who hadn't given their consent had footage of themselves in a contemporary scenario, um, retooled to produce a different version of them without their consent.
1: And of course, we have Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, she died in the middle of mm. Star Wars, yeah. and her daughter, I think, is saying now, you know, this that sets a precedent that. Mm if somebody can be sort of remade and reused and, well, then where does an actor stand then?
0: That's a very it's, very it's very fair concern. I mean, and it's and it demonstrates how fast we've moved with this. This really would have seemed like stuff of science fiction. Mm. Not even... I mean, it's interesting how quickly the AI thing moved. Uh, there have been several reports, stories the last few weeks about uh, laughing snorting at, at Mark Zuckerberg about the fact that he thought that it was all going to be about the meta world the you know uh, when he um, repurposed Facebook um, but what a year or two ago not that long ago I what he was missing was the real conversation was going to be about artificial uh, intelligence uh, and Carrie Fisher's point is fair I mean you know people walked into this initially when it was a gimmick and didn't think very much about the consequences I mean it goes back further than that in way back to Gladiator, 20 years ago, um, Oliver Reed died um, mid-production and bits of him were kind of, you know, shuffled around um, the movie um, to fill in the scenes he wasn't able to shoot. So, as, and in fact, going back to In the Line of Fire, the Clint Eastwood film, the, he was de-aged um, to uh, produce the younger version of him with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. So it's been going on for a while. For years I've been listening to all these idiots on bar stools with all their had theories on Dallas. But I think it's only now that we've realised quite what you can do. I mean, you can see this in in Donald Jones' film. It's interesting. I think there was a real gradation from uh, the Irishman to... the the most recent Indiana Jones film where I think in The Irishman a lot of people think it doesn't really work well. Whereas I think the Harrison Ford, the young Harrison Ford in in Dial of Destiny is pretty good.
1: Pretty good, yeah. And it does
0: would make anybody who's not as powerful as Harrison Ford (laughs) think, hell, what can they do to me if they would write my consent and they can do this to Harrison Ford with his consent.
1: Sure. And it struck me about AI and the writers because writers, as I said, seem to get paid in very many different ways. But if AI came up with an idea for a script, mm. then a writer then could be employed to adapt that script, and sure. that's a different level of payment.
0: When well, you're ad- it, is, it is. But then again, I mean, one of the problems you could say, certainly one of the characteristics of modern commercial cinema, uh, is its obsession with IP, with intellectual property, and that can come from anywhere these days. And in fact, I mean, you're raising the issue of worrying about fact that it's coming from uh, a creative computer, at least, at least computers being creative in that instance, um, a lot of the time the stuff is now coming from stuff you buy in shops, I mean where this week Barbie is released, but Barbie at least has kind of been a character before, we're talking about an era where you, you know, air um, uh, the recent film Ben Affleck uh, is based around the production of a shoe, Russian of the <laughs> air Jordan. A shoe is just a shoe until somebody steps into it then it has meaning the rest of us just want a chance to touch that greatness. And we need you in these shoes, not so you have meaning in your life, but so that we have meaning in ours. Well, you know, you've you've had um, Flame and Heart, um, Eva Longoria's film about the production of a flavour for um, tortilla chips. <laughs> um, we've got a Beanie Baby movie coming down the line, with a film about Tetris. There's a film about Blackberry right there. Very good reviews of Blackberry film, I should say. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm dissing it. But, um, I mean, I, I honestly... Don't know where to start when you're worrying about where the IP is coming from. Movies. I mean, maybe it's not. Maybe that's that's the least least bad of several terrible options to have a computer produce it.
1: So, Donald, can we talk about residuals? Because residuals—that's a key plank of the writer's strike. Can you explain to me about residuals?
0: Well, essentially, it's a royalty. I mean, it, it, in the past, uh, as I say, it's been what you've been paid whenever something you've worked on turns up in another medium. Um, or was repeated on the medium for which you originally wrote it, that um, you received a certain amount of payment for this. And which was not always the case, as you're know, going, back, going back to 1960 when Ronald Reagan was um, head of the Screen Actors Guild at that point, they suddenly had realized. I mean, no one had. I mean, when you made a motion picture, it's an interesting point this, when you made a motion picture back in the 30s and 40s, we often think that these people knew they were making work for the ages, and they didn't. I mean, at that stage, Television didn't really exist. Certainly video was a way, long way in the future. And when you made a film, you essentially thought it played in cinemas and then it vanished. It ceased to exist. No one, I mean, the notion that mm-hmm. film, even the notion that kind of, you know, film boffins would be looking at it 50 years later seemed implausible at that stage. We often romanticise that a bit too much. So when it came to 19, the late 50s, early 60s, suddenly people were aware that you had valuable property with a motion picture. You could screen on television um, now and forever. And those had to be had to be worked out at that point, as whether you know, actors would get any extra payment. For, of course, you know, it was not always the case that actors got any payment for um, uh, based on box office returns. Um, Jimmy Stewart way back in the early 50s, Winchester 73, famous deal that he made there where he would get a percentage of the profits of the film, something that was seen as being preposterous and dangerous in the studio system. And he was entirely right and made a small fortune on Winchester at 73, the um, uh, Anthony Man film. Only this time we just might out Fox. I kind of we got two Winchesters. Basically, that is the dilemma, is to what extent you get um, rewarded for uh, your work turning up um, either elsewhere in the medium which you made it or in other media, media in the future. And the issue which is causing so much fury or confusion as regards streaming services such as Netflix and um, Amazon Prime and so forth is they, they do not want to get into a ratings game. They don't want to release the figures. They only tend to release the figures whenever they're really, really good. So, for example, Netflix will say, oh, Wednesday, the, Adam show film is our most watched film in two or three years, whatever it happened to be. I can't remember what the exact statistic was, but they were very happy to reveal that it had been greatly watched. Um, they don't want to get into that old school game, which is changing the reporting of Hollywood uh, um, significantly because, you know, on, I mean, uh, when it came weekend, the weekend edition of Variety or whatever, or the what, Monday edition of Variety was poured over to see um, how, what the box office figures were for the previous weekend. Now a film is being released on Netflix. You don't really you get don't any sense mm. of how well it's done. Um, we, we, You kind of, from the tea leaves, you can kind of read something as a flop or something as a hit. Mm. And occasionally, information will emerge uh, as to what is doing well. And there are kind of unofficial charts, but that information is being kept close to the chest. And, and that is part of the reason why it's been very difficult for the unions uh, to get movement on residuals for... Um, their film was being played in streaming services.
1: I suppose what really sort of brought it into focus for me was I, I read that piece in The New Yorker from the people who were in Orange is the New Black, which yeah. of course was the the massive, massive success for Netflix. That really mm-hmm. helped establish Netflix, really. And one of the women in that cast, very, very obvious cast member, she she is now currently getting $27 yeah. a year in residuals. <laughs> well, it, but yeah. by contrast, and of course the the big example of the big contrast is of course Friends, because it's now estimated that, that the cast of Friends, they earn nearly $20 million a year in yeah, residuals. Yeah. So, and that was the great broadcast show and it's, it's yeah. syndicated all over the world and everything. But I mean, Netflix is all over the world. So 20 million versus, you know, $27. Would you can absolutely
0: understand why you see Fran Asher, the president of the Screen Actors Guild, being quite furious about this. And she's right. I mean, it's very hard to to dispute the fact that if you look back at – I mean, this is not to say that it's entirely just or moral that the people, the actors and friends are earning the kind of money that they're earning. Nonetheless, the contrast could not be more marked as to how things function today and how they functioned um, when it was all about broadcast television.
1: Now, you've mentioned Fran Dreschler. She seems to be emerging as sort of the star of this strike. Who who is she?
0: Fran, we remember her from The Nanny, um, the sitcom uh, in the 90s, 90s, and also as the great Bobby Fleckman in Spinal Tap, um, uh, um, who is the one who explains... To uh, their manager, uh, played by Tony Head, um, the inappropriateness of the album in which they have like a greased-up woman. Ian, I mean, what's you put about? a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar a around dog her collar. neck and a, leash, and a leash, and a man's arm extended out up to here, holding on to the leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? Well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. But, um, uh, yes, and so, so she, that's where she comes from. And it's a funny world, actually, <laughs> about union leaders in, acting, in the acting business. I can remember when I lived in London, that the head of um, uh, equity at that stage was Mr. Rumbled from Are You Being Served? <laughs> I can't remember his name, but I can remember that he was the head of equity at that right. point. It's, do
1: comedy people always rise to the top in yeah, equity? It, okay, so. right. okay. it
0: seems so. It's, it's a very good ad, ad, advertisement. But be serious about this, she's come out of it very well. And she's, she's really articulate, very forceful, puts the case very formidably. And, of course, it's a, it's a good, it is a useful thing in a union to have a charismatic person at your head, whether they be Franz Dreschner or Arthur Scargill. Um, it is useful to have someone who commands the attention of the, a camera, uh, as she does. But that is a trivial point, more serious point, is that she has actually been a very forceful and articulate um, proponent of her, of, of her members and has come out of it very well and has become kind of, a celebrity a second time round as a result of that.
1: Okay, so we know what one side is looking for. What's the other side? What are the studios saying?
0: Well, I mean, they're not saying all that much, frankly. I mean, uh, that uh, Bob Iger, the um, head of um, Disney, uh, um, uh rather kind of walked into it at some point in this where he sort of said there were being kind of exact words he used but essentially said they were being unreasonable at this stage and the management are doing, doing what management do that they are closing ranks that they are um, uh, making the usual arguments they always make about strikers this isn't a very appropriate time to do this because we're coming into the summer and we're all facing the usual difficulties that we're facing um, but they're doing what management do they they're kind of circling wagons and holding up for a long battle and it um what we are seeing from them is what we're sensing is um, a reorganization to face up to the possibility of a long strike. I and mean, that's going to put them in a difficult position because at some point we have what we haven't discussed here, yes, the obvious fact of things that people are not are now not shooting movies. That there are, you know, films like the Deadpool three, the Deadpool sequel, which has been filming in Pinewood in England, has been shut down. Did that shut um, down
1: because of the writers strike or did that shut down because of the actors I
0: strike? I think that was the, I think that was the the actors strike I think. I think I think that they, they didn't they didn't require any more work from the writers at that point. Not 100% sure on that, but I mean it's spreading across the world because this affects American productions outside the United States um, as well. So they're starting to have to kind of think about how they're going to strategize the um the upcoming release schedule if no one is in studios or very few people are in studios shooting movies. Okay,
1: that's good. That's lunch. Coming up, Donald Clark explains what the Hollywood strike is going to do for TV watching. Now, the timing is probably not great for the strikers, is it? Because the last strike was in. 2007, I think 2008. That was kind of mid-season. And that's why I think it was memorable because loads of TV series had to go on a big hiatus, if you you remember. Mm -hmm. This strike, the writer's strike began in early May as most of traditional shows were wrapping up for the season. The 1988 strike started in March. It ended in August which meant that most of the show had to start their autumn season in America in late October and November. So, you know, not so bad. So, does that mean, because of the timing here now, does that mean that this strike is going to drag on?
0: Well, it, it means it could drag on. I mean, they have a certain amount of freedom as a result of that timing and certainly a certain of flexibility as a result of that timing to move on. Um, uh, uh, I mean, and it certainly, I mean, there are various um, uh, off-the-record quotes from in, industry insiders and on, on the half of the management who think they can essentially starve them out. And They're talking about the notion of kind of well, this is just entirely unofficial, but there's off-the-record talks. about like, wait until people start losing their houses and losing their apartments. But I mean, it's it does seem as if everybody is is battening down for a long strike. That does. I mean, there's no. I get no great sense that people are going to try and sort this out. Are going to be able to sort this out in the next three or four weeks? Um, and that is going to run on. It's. I mean, you have issues like the Emmy Awards, for example. That's September That's, I mean, is it? Yeah, yeah, it Could be uh, used to put pressure on on um, both sides, but that doesn't seem to be getting people energised one way or the other. Um, So I think everything points to the capacity for a long strike, even if it doesn't work out that way.
1: But does that really depend on other unions joining in?
0: Well, no, I'm not an expert in American, American liberal, <laughs> I'd say. Um, so I don't... I mean, But film
1: I'm, sets are highly unionised. Yeah, they are
0: highly unionised. It's one of those interesting things about the United States is that um, we think of it as being a more right-wing society than here. But actually, when it comes to unionisation, in a lot of areas of work, they are just as, if not more heavily unionised than we are in this part of the world. And that is certainly true in the entertainment business. Now, I don't think, for example, the DGA, Directors Guild of America, um, can come out in sympathy. I don't think that. I think that. Con- I don't think they are allowed to do that anymore. It is purely in sympathy. But of course. But
1: could they not have the same issues? Exactly. Can they not say? That's, that, yeah.
0: That's that's the question. Is will we get to a stage where the Directors Guild, for example, though, you know. I mean, if the writers and the actors aren't working, then the directors probably are not working anyway. But <laughs> there, there is that. But I mean, they would be obviously the one that spring to mind. The PGA are almost cert- are almost certainly not going to get involved in this because they're essentially they? the producers' guild of America because they're essentially on the other side <laughs> to a large extent. Uh, those divides aren't entirely black and white. But um, but uh, uh, but that's unlikely to be a factor. But I mean that could be a factor down the line, but it will be as I understand it to do with to do with individual negotiations rather than than with them coming out in sympathy, which I don't think is what's happening with the was it was it was explicitly with WGA and SAG currently.
1: So we know that some shows like Yellow Jackets and Stranger Things, they've halted, they, they halted work after the writer's strike began. So that sort of means, doesn't it, that, you know, in September and October, when traditionally new seasons of those shows might begin, that won't happen. And does that mean that on TV, if this goes on, that on TV we're just going to be seeing more sort of non-scripted shows, those reality shows?
0: Well, it's interesting to question you asked because there's a myth has sort of grown up. And now I say myth, there's a great dispute about this, but the myth has grown up that one of the things that um, created the um, uh, avalanche of reality television or encouraged the avalanche of television that we've got in this century was the last writer's WGA strike, which was, I can't remember it was that year, but it was round about the start of and all that was, was starting to happen. Apparently, that's not quite true. Um, The the reality television was already up and running and chugging along before that came along. And perhaps it made it a little easier for reality television to happen um, and spread. But it wasn't actually the deciding factor in it becoming um, a phenomenon um, for the ages. So uh, that doesn't seem to be an obvious factor. But it does mean mean essentially you're going to have to spread out. Um, what, what they you've have. got. Mm. Um, so it will alter release dates. I mean, in the last writer strike, actually, one of the things that it did affect, and we have, you know, first-hand reports of this, is there are occasional uh, films that went out with an incomplete script. And the most famous example of that was Quantum of Solace, the James Bond film, which Daniel Craig has admitted that he and other people on set basically wrote themselves because they had an incomplete script. And he actually, <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have, have taken this to mean that's why it was so terrible, was that Daniel Craig, who for all his many talents is not a professional writer, um, had to write some of his own dialogue. So those sort of things were happening back then. Um, I don't, I some feel it wouldn't happen now. I sometimes feel that would be a little more aware of um, mechanics of how these films are getting made, and would we'll be a little more cautious about, for example, allowing whoever James Bond will be um, to write his own screenplay. But yet, all these things are up in the air. I mean, but um, certainly you can make reality television easier, Even even that requires the work of some writers. That's worth pointing out. I mean, we know that the, from the fact that the WGA strike is affecting awards ceremonies. That's become an issue because you've got to write stuff for the people to, to say when they get on. Uh, onto on the, the podium. podium. They're not actually making, much as you think they're making stuff up as they go along, when John Hamm, whoever, turns up um, and does his gags, someone's written those gags for him. Um, but I, I wouldn't overstate the extent to which it will, could affect the kind of television that we're going to be watching.
1: Okay, so we're going to be watching this. You feel this strike is going to go on and on. I cannot have the our chief film correspondent in the studio without asking about Barbie and Oppenheimer. We're in a race against the Nazis.
0: And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb.
1: Because you've seen both.
0: I have, finally, after all this discussion that's been going on for, since 1973, it feels. And if one has finally seen both, I have finally seen both Oppenheimer and Barbie, both of which I liked, I must say. Um, Yeah, it's interesting, phenomenal. I mean, the the Barbenheimer thing is, it almost seems as if it was created as a gag initially, or created is the wrong word. It evolved as a gag. Um, Christopher Nolan had been messing around with Warners forever. He was their kind of pet genius. Their previous pet genius was Stanley Kubrick, and then they had Nolan, and then they were falling out because... They put all their films um, onto streaming services, which links to what we're pretty talking about. He didn't like that. He said, I'm taking Oppenheimer to Universal, Universal. And then um, the release date was announced for Oppenheimer and then the release date for Barbie from who? Warner Brothers um, was announced as the same day um, when they did their stuff at the cinema convention in Las Vegas two years previously. And people sort of felt, well, one of them's going to blink first. One of them's going to move because, you know, it's unusual to have two such potentially huge films opening on the same day. But they soon realized it became a kind of, you know, useful symbiotic relationship, um, uh, having those two things, because people rather crassly reduced one into the boys' film and one into the girls' film, which is most unfair and reductive and insulting to both genders. Um, Nonetheless, it worked well for a conversation piece and it generated memes and generated T-shirts and ultimately it generated a portmanteau word and now it's finally here. And it probably has worked out perfectly well for both of them because they have ended up, Mutually um, helping one uh, each other onto the front pages of newspapers um, and up to the top of websites and um, and and apart from anything else, have started off and about whether you can see both on the same day, which many people are.
1: So okay, I'm not going to see them on the same day, but let's pretend <laughs> I was going to see them on the same day. Which should I go to see first?
0: Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to get. Into, I, <laughs> I, I feel I feel wary of getting into that conversation. I like I like both. I mean, I think um, both have their flaws um i uh, i mean i feel i don't think um barbie has quite got past the uh, difficulty that wherever hard it tries to make the film about everything under the sun including gender politics and also and death in your of death. Death. Oh. yes i mean it's one of those extraordinary things <laughs> is that is that um this is right at the beginning so it doesn't really count as a spoiler is that barbie initially seen in barbie world that what precipitates her um, insecurity about um, her status as this symbol of womanly perfection is sudden realization of the inevitability of death. <laughs>
1: and absolutely. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with
0: all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. When I say it's not really a kid's film, I don't mean that it's, that, that it's full of obscenity and, and, and drug abuse and sex. It's not. It's, it's, it's not those things. But it's um, uh, the narrative is not nearly as playful and light-hearted as you might think. Though it is more playful and light-hearted than Oppenheimer, to be said. <laughs> Even if there is more discussion of the existential nature of death in uh, Barbie than Oppenheimer, which is a surprise. Um, I thought Oppenheimer was also, I thought, was. I, I enjoyed it very much. It has that problem with Christopher Nolan, which is fine when you're in a Batman film of maybe just too much filmmaking, that everything is punctuated by enormous amounts of sound design and rumbling and fast cuts. And um, the characters in what is, after all, inevitably, and quite correctly, quite a talky film, don't get much opportunity just to sit down in the quiet um, uh, because that's what Christopher Nolan makes films. But I thought it was a very lucid um, explanation of the route from um, theoretical physics to the bomb. And uh, I thought Murphy was very good and... Communicated the moral qualms that Oppenheimer and the people surrounding him had up to the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which is not, not shown in They've made that decision, which caused some controversy, decision to have it. Purely through his eyes. So as a result of that, you don't get to see the, the mushroom cloud, Okay. Uh, you see the well, you see the mushroom cloud in Trinity, the, the, which is done brilliantly. The initial um, test, the famous test in Trinity in New Mexico, but you don't actually see the bombs, the effect of the bombs being dropped on on Hiroshima. Some people have wondered whether that's appropriate, but I think in his case it was actually a moral choice. He felt that little work of entertainment, um, and it wasn't appropriate, and also the fact that it's done entirely from Oppenheimer's point of view. But I thought both were very effective in their very different ways and I think well they do well well I mean one of the things that was this was pitched as to a certain extent um a blur versus oasis thing but like which will make more money I will Oppenheim probably will make more money there's absolutely no question about that it's already broken records in Irish cinemas for advanced sales it's done an absolute fortune it'll probably hang around It's the kind of film that will hang around. So there's no question of which film will make more money. Um, Then again, Oppenheimer will get more Oscar nominations. So perhaps that will satisfy Christopher Nolan more.
1: Okay, I think you've answered my question. It's Barbie first for me now. (laughs) Donald, thanks very much for coming in. Cut, cut, cut. That's it for today. For Donald Clark's film reviews and his culture column, subscribe at IrishTimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by John Casey. In the news, we'll be back soon.